how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Molly Smith Meltzler spent 15 years writing plays before stepping into television work. Around 2015, she got a job on HBO limited series from director Steve McQueen, but unfortunately the show wasn't picked up. That said, her, her career took off. She's now known for Orange is the New Black, Casual, Shameless, and Made, where she's also the creator. In Made, the story follows Alex Russell, played by Margaret Quelly, as she tries to flee an abusive relationship. As a young mother, she finds work cleaning houses and tries to provide for her child despite the odds being stacked against her. In this interview, Molly talks about her transition to television, her advice for climbing the ladder in TV, advice from John Wells, who did ER in the West Wing, and how she pitched such a difficult subject matter to Netflix. I came up as a playwright. Uh, I spent 15 years studying playwriting, going to various graduate programs I, <laughs> and waitressing. I did that for about 15 years. And, uh, you know, I, I went to Boston University. I went to Tisch. I went to Juilliard. And during all that time was exclusively writing plays. Um, I really have a have a lean. I like lean into dramedy. I really like to write plays that have drama and comedy in them. And so people over the years sort of said, you, you know, you'd be a great fit in television. And I wasn't really sure if that was true. I'd never written a spec or a pilot or done any of that stuff, but I was very lucky because, um, yeah, 15 years into playwriting, it, Steve McQueen was staffing a room for an HBO limited series in New York City. This is 2015, and uh, I got that call. So that's how I got started in screenwriting. Did that, how did uh, maybe writing for a live audience, did that change your style? Did that make the jokes punchier? How did you think about some things other people may not think about who are just entering television? Well, I think one of the great gifts of being a playwright is that you get to watch an audience watch your work. Um, if you're smart, you don't sit in the house, you kind of hide in the back, but <laughs> but you can watch 
and it's they tell you everything when they lean in you know that the the writing's working that the story is being told well you can feel when they're bored and when they pull out um you know and when your your shows on netflix you can't watch people watch it in the same way but i think what it teaches you is how easy it is to lose an audience, how how tired and hungry everyone is. They they don't want to be in the theater. You have to really work hard to hold their attention. And so uh, that idea of keeping the ball in the air, I think you learn that as a playwright um, and that very much carries over with screenwriting. That even though I can't watch people watch it, I have the instinct about like, is the ball in the air? Am I, am I keeping them? Are they with me? Are they with me? Um, it's a gift to get to learn that young. What, what was the Steve McQueen project you were working on? It's called Codes of Conduct. It was for HBO. It actually never aired, even though Steve shot the pilot, which was beautiful. But, I, I, you know, I don't, there's lots of reasons why these things don't happen. Sure. But what was great is for me, I, we wrote the entire six episode series. And so it was my first room, but I was with these really experienced writers like Sammy Chellis from Mad Men and Bash Doran, Dan LaFranc, like these wonderful playwrights who had done high level television. And, uh, that was my first job and they were so gracious and so kind to me. And um, I learned so much. It was really, really positive. Alan Poole was there. You know, it's just very, very great first job. And then, you know, one call leads to another call and I've been pretty busy since. Do you know, did they give you any indication of what made your work stand out as far as getting into that room? Did they talk about anything like that with you? Yes, actually. Um, Alan Poole is one of the executive producers, um, he has a reputation for doing this actually, but he loves to discover playwrights and and, and bring them to the screen. Uh, and he's done that since Six Feet Under. He, you know, he has a, he just has an ear for it. So he was very interested in finding a female playwright to join the, the staff. And the show itself was about class and it was sort of about the haves and the have nots. It's, um, it was a very powerful story about kind of like a six degrees of separation sort of story. Mm -hmm. And so they were looking for someone who wrote about socioeconomics and I had, that's my wheelhouse right there at socioeconomics. And I think they were looking too for someone who could write, um, you know, some humor, kind of keep think, keep the ball in the air. And so mm -hmm. when they read my play, I, you know, it was about rich people and it had a sense of humor. So I think I kind of checked all those boxes. Thanks for sharing all that. Because a lot of people are going to look at your IMDb page and like, how did you go from Orange is the New Black, Casual, Shameless to me? It's so much so fast, but you have this rich, you know, history and everything else and, and working with Steve McQueen in those. Do you have any advice for like getting noticed once you're in there? Like you kind of move from an executive story editor to a writer. It seems like kind of quickly, like how, what are the differences in those two jobs for people that are not familiar? And how did you kind of make that transition? Well, what I love about television, um, which I, I like to tell my writer friends who haven't yet done television, is I like it just makes sense. It's hierarchical. You know, you you come into a job at a staff staff writer level or an executive story editor level. And then, you know, ideally you just move up the ladder every season of that show. Or if that show ends, and you go into another show, then you're going to start at the next rung up. It's very um, it's just a very straightforward ladder. I think as a writer, I like that. It makes it very clear. Um, but sometimes you get to hop steps a little bit. And, and that's what happened to me with the hop from Shameless to Made. You know, I spent four, four seasons on Shameless, three or four seasons on Shameless. Um, and I was a co-executive producer, but I'd never been an executive producer. And Made was very much um, a big jump for me that I was the creator, the writer, the executive producer, all those things. And uh, I, I will say, I think the reason people trusted me to take that step is because I had 
had so much experience. You know, I'd been in so many rooms, Orange is the New Black, a lot of Shameless. I did Casual. I did the project with Steve. You know, I'd been on set. I had a lot of production experience. Um, I think it's very rare to just get to hop all the steps without doing some staff writing, you know. But my, it, um, my advice and what I like to tell my friends that haven't done TV yet is that when it happens, it happens very, very fast. When you get that first job, someone, you know, for with me, someone read my play, loved my play, gave it to Steve, Steve read it. We did a meeting on a Friday and I started the job on Tuesday. And so when it happens, it happens really fast. And when you get that first job, which is very hard to get, but when you get the first job, that's the one you have to do incredibly well. You have to just very, really nail your first job, make sure everyone in that room knows what you're capable of. And then it, 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 again, it's just this ladder. You'll keep, you'll keep climbing as long as you show up and do a great job. Are there certain things you learned on like Orange and Casual and Shameless that you took with you to develop a writer's room for MADE? Yes. Uh, working for John Wells is something that every future showrunner should have to do because he it's just a masterclass in how to run a writer's room. Um, I was so lucky to work in his room on Shameless for many years. And I learned two huge things. From, I, I mean, I learned endless things from him, but I, the two biggest things that applied to me is first um, that John Wells is the hardest working person on his shows. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean that as a writer, like he hires very high level writers, really empowers them. We have a real sense of ownership of our work. We're very, very involved. It's a small room. It's a very, very warm room. There's a ton of laughter and respect, but ultimately he's the head writer and, he, and those scripts are on him, you know, and, and if network isn't liking them, he, he kind of runs interface on that. Like he's very much the writer of the show. We work with him, but He's out in front and he, you know, is the hardest working person in the writer's room. And I think that that's really a great thing to learn because, you know, I think, <laughs> I think it's easy to forget because showrunning is also a managerial nightmare. I mean, you're like on set, you're hiring people, you're firing people, you're casting people, you know, you're kind of spread all over, but our primary job is the writing. And I think I very much learned that from John, that if you don't have the incredible scripts ready on time, you aren't doing your job. The other main thing I learned from John, which is wonderful, is um, he's a true leader. Um, he thinks about people. He thinks about his crew. If it's raining, he worries about them. Um, he has a tender heart. If people like that, this is our job. This is in our life. Um, but his his staff is incredibly loyal and has worked for him forever. Um, and there's a reason he's just beloved and trusted. It's because he he really cares about the people he works with. And so I I hope to emulate that. We should all emulate that. What was kind of your, your pitch and tone for me? Where did the idea come from and how did you kind of pitch it? It's funny. I can't, I still can't believe made soul. Not only did it sell, it was sort of like <laughs> multiple people wanted it because it's not a very sexy pitch. I mean, there's no murder. There's no whodunit. There's not a mystery. There's no like cool accents. You know, <laughs> It's really just about this, single character going on a heroic journey. But to answer your question, I really leaned into that, you know, so when I took this as a pitch, I was like, the book is incredible, but it's very sad and very earnest. And we're going to shake the NPR off of this book. And what we're going to do is spend 10 hours with a vibrant, funny, 
flawed 25 year old girl who's trying to figure this shit out and we are never going to leave her point of view so we are going to like deeply invest in this character and she is the show and her experience is is the point like the point of made which i said in the pitch is that you are going to experience this year with her and you are going to get stuck in a cycle of emotional abuse with her um and you are going to come out on the other side and you know that i kind of doubled down on like this is this is the show. The show is the emotional experience of being this woman. Um, and I, and then I also had to talk in the pitch a little bit about the magical realism and the moments of humor and levity because everybody's like homelessness. Oh, you know, this is not, this is too heavy for TV. And I agree. So part of it was the execution, this gallows humor that she has, the way that we were going to see everything through, through her eyes. And, and she has a kind of comedic view of the world. So I had to talk about that quite a bit. And the characters, I just talk about, you know, pitching, you've got to talk yeah. about all of it. But, um, but that was the main thing, just that the tone of the show is going to be a bit more flea bag than Chernobyl. <laughs> talk about that, that this, this show, uh, they're very different. This show reminded me of another show called Normal People. And it just felt like. <laughs> what the- a compliment, Brock. I love you. That's my <laughs> Normal People is, I, is just the most genius writing. I think that's, I, it, I th- what a compliment. Thank you. I think they they both need like this couldn't really be a movie. It needs the long story. As you said, the cycle. How did you think about stretching that out? Like, was it? I mean, did you have to arc it out over the ten episodes? What are what are the bigger conversations like for the full series? Well, God, I love normal people. Now I just want to go up. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. Normal people can't be a movie. There's actually right. no version where it's a movie. A lot of people thought Made should be a movie. And I could see it's like a very sad, muddy, independent movie that's just a bummer. Yeah. Um, right? I mean, right. I'm sure it's awards, baby, but like it was just going to be a bummer. And we weren't going to get, we weren't going to understand her. I wanted to explore how you end up in this position and and about the generational cycles of trauma that we live in, that you end up in an emotionally abusive relationship because you that's all you know, because you inherit it from your parents. And that's going to take a second to show. Um, and so I think for me, the approach was the memoir itself covers quite a bit of time. And I, I think it covers you know several years. And I was like, we are going to do one year and we're going to break this out over the course of four seasons. And we're going to just chart from, from her voluntarily stepping into homelessness to arriving on that mountain at the end, you know? And so I really had a clear sense of how much can happen in one year. And then I think in the writer's room, we just gave ourselves permission to think of it that way. Like how much can change in one year um, and, and to take our time. I mean, it's a weird thing to say in television where we have to put the ball in the air, but take your time, breathe into these, what, what are these seasons for her and to allow them to kind of take up space, not rush. Well, a lot of um, a lot of the first interviews I did when Netflix was doing so many series, there was kind of a question of like, are we still making this in the old model where it needs a cliffhanger ending, or are we? Are, did you guys talk about? Are you thinking about at all? Like, I want to make one version for someone who watched one episode a day or a week, and one version for the weekend benders. Like, how do you think about some of those things in terms of writing and, and keeping them interested in this long story? Well, I frankly expected Netflix to be a little bit more Netflixy about it. You know, mm. I was braced for, for them to be like, yes, but what's the mustache twirly <laughs> the end of episode one. And they really, to their credit, they knew what they were buying. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I explained 
and they embrace what they're buying. And I, I've never really experienced anything quite like this. And I've now worked, you know, in quite a few different networks and studios, but they were, they were really trusting. They, the slow burn of made mm-hmm. and the writing of made, they were just on board. And I did not get a lot of pushback about the, the binging thing of it all. Now at the very end, when we put the whole thing together and post, and we started to be like, this is a 10 hour movie. And you start to look at, you know, what are we asking people at the end of every episode? There are some conversations about the end of the first episode and like what, how to make sure everyone would come back for the second episode. But I will say it wasn't something we talked about in the creative process at all. It was very much something we talked about in post. Um, and, and that's why I'm so grateful that we did this at Netflix because again, they just, it really trusted the tone and the feel of the show. And uh, that's why I'm going to continue to work with them because it was really uh, like, they really trusted me. Not sure why, but they did. <laughs> so, you, so I think you said you had the memoir to go back on. I think, I feel like something about, I just love a slow burn, but it seems like it might be kind of hard to write. I assume the memoir would help you choose the tentpole plot points. But how did you kind of, were there any points where you're like, no, no, this should happen sooner. This should happen later. And how did you kind of draw those out that way where it's still really interesting to be a slow burn? Well, the, what's in, what's riveting about the memoir, because you read the memoir, it, it, it's like an action movie. It's a really a thriller. It's so stressful. She's under so much stress all the time, but it's also a tremendous bummer with very little victory. You know, it's just shit happens to her. And then eventually it ends, you know? Um, And so one of the big things that I was conscious about was, you know, we're going to lose people. We can't just be a bummer and, and we can't burn slowly without hope. Right. And without variance and without relationships. Like, uh, so we kind of went, we had the ambition to keep the stress, to keep the emotional stress of the story, but to really flush it out with more characters. So, you know, we added the mother, the father, the boyfriend, Regina, uh, Danielle, the cleaning staff. These are all invented characters from that don't exist in the memoir. Um, but there were tentpole things in the memoir that were emotional that we had to keep. Um, and I can give you an example. The um, I think the climax of the book is this terrible moment where her she everything's falling apart and her daughter throws the mermaid out the window and she gets into a car accident. And again, I think when you look at the memoirs piece of literature, that is the classic climax of the whole thing. And I have that in the first episode. So, mm. it, and my instinct was just like, let's start hot. Let's start, let's start at the climax. Mm. Um, let's, sh- let's show that. Let's show the action of this, the thriller of this, mm. that, you know, cause every moment of the book is like that, but n- but especially if it was just a especially dramatic example of the, the conflict in her life between trying to be a mother and trying to survive. Hmm. Is there any, so, so um, a really common thing that really helps writers rooms as opposed to individual writers writing movies that you can have these big debates about like, how do we make Sean sometimes seem like a good guy, sometimes seem like a bad guy? How do you make Alex seem like, okay, she's making the wrong decision. She's making the right decision. What were some of those conversations you had specifically about domestic abuse, verbal abuse, some of those things? And is it hard to take the negative side sometimes in the, in the writer's room? Yeah. Well, I did, I did two things um, that were really smart. One is I hired a very small room. There's four writers and myself, and um, I really admired all four of these writers work because they weren't bad guys. 
you know, there's no bad guys or classic villains, you know, abusers don't have a t-shirt on that says I'm an abuser. And they look like Nick Robinson. They seem like nice guys, you know, like, uh, and I felt like, you know, it was mostly playwrights, but I felt like their work really wrote about complicated people, um, really flawed, fucked up people and how they aren't black and white. And so I felt like I, I hired writers who knew how to do that. But the other thing we did that was really smart is we did a lot of research about domestic violence. Um, there was a shelter here in Los Angeles, it's called the Genesee Center. Uh, they have three emergency shelters, like the one Alex goes to in episode two. And uh, we spent time there, I, you know, I toured the facility, I got to meet some of the people, I went through the intake process, like they took me through what it would be like to show up as Alex. Um, and so I think that's part of, you know, we, we came into the room with all this research about em emotional abuse, what it looks like, what the symptoms are, what to look for, what to do. Um, and so, you know, I think we were really informed um, about what we were trying to dramatize. How did you come about some of the other characters? I think you said a lot of them were developed for the show as, as opposed to the memoir. Like, do you, in, in, a, in a long story like this, do you need people that, especially in the shelter, who are making better and worse decisions than the protagonist to kind of play off the protagonist? How do you think about some things like that? You know, how we think about it in the writer's room is probably like, I would, I would kind of hate for the audience to know how we talk about it, but I will tell you how we talk about it, which is, you know, what is Alex, what's Alex's emotional beat in this episode? What's she learning? How are we moving her story forward? Mm -hmm. And then how can we use these other characters and the houses that she's cleaning mm -hmm. to help tell that story? And I think a, a very good example of that is episode five, where he is figuring out that she is comes from a, a family that had abuse, her father abused her mother. And she's figuring that out because she has a series of panic attacks in, in a cupboard mm. um, at that house that she's cleaning. And I think, you know, again, in the writer's room that day, we're like, okay, so in episode five, she's got to figure out that she's having these flashbacks. How are we going to do that? It starts there and then you like mm. build it out. And, you know, one of our writers, Colin was like, well, what if it's the, that house is kind of haunted in the book because abuse and trauma kind of haunts you and it can, you know, maybe it, it resonates with the house itself. Is the house spooky, you know, and it starts there. And I mean, we kind of build it out to make it feel organic and character driven, of course, but like, yeah, it's, it's all to serve Alex's journey. Have you seen, uh, I'm sure this show has gotten a giant response in, in reality, like as far as displaying some of these things, have you seen a good positive response? Have you seen people maybe in real life making better decisions based on the show? Uh, yes. And it's, it's, it's wild to me because I love that people love the show. Um, but, and that's wonderful. I'm, I'm really, thank you. Thank you to everyone who loves the show. But the, I feel like the even greater thing as an artist is a little bit that we did. I think this show did come into living rooms with people who recognize themselves on screen or recognize their relationships and called that hotline at the end of the show. Um, the national domestic violence hotline experienced the highest call volume in their 25 year history wow. in, October, in October of 2021, the year, you know, when the show dropped, I'm not saying it's all maid's fault, but I think, I think people, I think it changed people's perception of what abuse is because mm -hmm. we so rarely get to see emotional abuse on screen. I, I can't think of another time I've ever, you know, he always hits her or, or she always hits the kid, you know, but to, to experience actual emotional abuse, hands off what that looks like. Um, I think, I think, unfortunately, we have a lot of victims of emotional abuse who picked up the phone. 
I think maybe before it was probably done poorly, not to, you know, bash <laughs> Lifetime movies or something like that, right. but you know, yeah. it's like, it's yeah. just like the black or white, to, you know, the sit, you know, that type of thing. If someone who's a bitch. Yeah. But they're not a bitch. <laughs> you know, when right. you get to spend a year with it, then you right. see kind of corrosive quality of it. Yes. Yeah. And she's just trying to be the mother, but the whole, I don't know. It's just, it's very, it's very draws you in, in, in such a great way. Um, logistically, was this just a project that you were like kind of obsessed with that you wanted it to be the next one? Or were you thinking like, I'd like to do a mini series as opposed to tackling a giant, you know, something that might be five seasons. Like, how did you think about some of those things? Um, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about any of that stuff. You know, I think I'm a playwright and I also write features and I write television. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm always kind of just looking for the thing that excites me and I don't really think about what it is. Um, and so when I got made, it was kind of good luck because I was working on Shameless. So I was in John Wells's office and John and Margot Robbie had just optioned this book. And I think they were talking about like literally at the being like, who should write this? And I was sitting there in the office in their face. So I, you know, I went home and I read it and, and I was like, well, this is definitely a limited series. And I, I, I feel it and I see it and it's this long and I want to write it. Um, and that reaction is incredibly rare. I had never felt that way before um, about material. So I, I say, I say no to a lot of things, but I say no to a lot of ideas that I have too. Like, you know, you just, I, <laughs> it's, it's rare to have that reaction. And I think that that's kind of our currency as writers. You have to feel like, oh no, this is it, you know, clear the deck. Um, and if it's a movie, great. If it's a play, great. If it's a 10 hour miniseries, you know, damn, that's going to be a lot of work, but you know, that was my experience with made. I, no matter what made was, I was going to write made. Aside from made, maybe in your off time, what, what are kind of the logistics of your idea process? Do you have a notebook you write in? Like, when do you know, let's say you've got three ideas. When do you know this next one might be worth a spec script or something like that? How do you kind of, is it just an obsession or how do you see it? Uh, well, I think adapting is really fun because you're not alone, right? Mm-hmm. Like you've, you've got, I, I like the adaptation process because you read it a couple of times, you pull out all your favorite parts and then there's something on your whiteboard, you know, you're not alone. Right. Um, I like that. But when I'm writing something original, like, you know, a play or, or, you know, I mean, so much of made was original because the characters, were, but to answer your question, my process is not good. I, I don't, rec- <laughs> I don't recommend my process. I, I I cannot write a word until I really emotionally understand what it is. So mm-hmm. what that looks like for me is weeks, sometimes months of doing jigsaw puzzles and like muttering and not opening final draft. And I make people very nervous. I made John Wells very nervous because he'd be like, how's the finale? And I'd be like, it's great. It, I haven't opened the document yet, but it's great. But like that, I, I think through the entire thing before I write it. Um, so for in a lot of ways, the actual writing of it is the final step for me. Um, and again, don't recommend it. I feel like these, these healthy writers who write five to 10 pages every day and go to yoga, like that's the way you should do it. I, I, um, I get blocked until I absolutely know what it is. I think you said in that the, the emotional arc is kind of what you have. Does that like in made, and we don't have to give away the ending if you don't want to, was that the ending? Was that, that this is a mother daughter story? Was that, that this is about a, a couple that, you know, figuring out their own separation type of thing. What, what, what did you mean exactly? When did you know you had something like that? To me with made the thing that, I mean, I, to be honest with you, I I wasn't able to start 
I could think about it in ideas, but in terms of actually starting to write that script and getting off the puzzle, as I like to say, getting <laughs> off the puzzle and onto the screen, um, I went to the Pacific Northwest and I met Stephanie who wrote the memoir and she showed me all the real things that she wrote about oh. and it rained for five days straight and everything was harder there because it was wet and moldy and the trees are huge and you don't get to see any of the light. And like, I, I just suddenly understood that it, it was its own character. It's more specific. intangible than what I'm trying to say. Right. Yeah. And I'm like in my sunny palm, palm tree office, you know, in Los Angeles and it's totally different that nature was against her as well. Um, and, and then I started to feel that, like to feel that entrapment, to feel tiny under those trees, you know, they're so big and you're so tiny and, uh, and just how lonely it would be to live there. And so then to me, the, that was what made me able to start to write. I think I understood what it must feel like to feel so small um, and alone. I think we're almost out of time. To kind of go back to how you were choosing your writer's room, other playwrights, were you reading screenplays or were you picking people? And if you were reading screenplays, what's something people can do to stand out more in addition to voice? I mean, is there something really unique that you recall that you're like, I've got to work with this person? Or was it just something, again, like kind of intangible? Well, I'll tell you, I think that there's the script and then there's the meaning in person, right? And the um, to ultimately, I think the meaning in person is kind of more telling because you... I don't know. I tend, you just get a feeling about somebody like, can I disagree with you? Can I spend eight hours with you? You know, can I, you know, tell you secret things about my family? Can I hear yours? Like the meeting I think is, you know, is very important, but when I'm reading, um, I read all kinds of material. I read short stories. I read read screenplays. I read plays. Um, And I think, I, I don't know. My biggest advice is that less is more mm-hmm. um, because I feel like sometimes you get a script and it's just so clamored in and there's eight quotes to introduce it before it starts and like, just be simple and confident. Um, but, <laughs> but also like the scripts I always gravitate to have a really specific world, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and like I was just talking about the Pacific Northwest, like it took me seeing it to be able to write it so specifically. And so no matter what you're writing, whether you're in an apartment in the Upper West Side or, you know, Texas or Mars, you know, if you, if that world is really vibrant and specific, I think you're going to, you're going to grab someone's attention because that's hard to do. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.